All right, Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. Paul here continues. He says, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So there you have it. That's our passage this morning. Just a brief recap, of course. We're in the book of Galatians. We've been looking through this book. Um, As you know, Paul wrote this to a group of churches uh, in the southern region of Central Asia Minor. Um, That's what I believe. I believe these are churches that Paul has established on his first missionary journey that is recorded in Acts chapters 13 and 14. Uh, So this would make Galatians, if not Paul's earliest letter, one of Paul's earliest letters, and perhaps one of the first uh, books in the New Testament. You can make an argument for James, but either way, um, this is one of the earliest letters. And Paul, of course, is dealing with an issue that is central and core to the gospel. Why is that? Because what you have is, after he had made this missionary journey through these churches and went on to uh, go back to his home base in Antioch, uh, some troublers have come in. Some Judaizers have come in, and they began uh, corrupting the gospel that Paul had laid the foundation with in that church. And the corruption was to add works of the law to the faith that they had, saying, it's not enough to say you believe in Christ. You have to do these things, particularly circumcision, but other things as well. Really, it's just a marker for uh, works of the Jewish law, uh, um, uh, observing the Mosaic law, saying you have to do this. You have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. So they are adding to faith. And Paul, when he hears about this, he is perplexed, right? That's what we saw immediately in chapter 1, right? He, he, he comes out against him and says, I am, I am astonished. I am perplexed. I am, I, am, I am amazed that you are so quickly, as he says, turning away. From him who called you. In other words, you know, the, you, have, you have been given the keys of freedom, and now you're so quickly turning away back to uh, works, back to things that are, that are dead, back to things that are obsolete. So after giving some you know, biographical information and some historical information, Paul begins to, in chapters 3 and 4, really set about his argument how works of the law play no part in our justification. They play no role in our salvation. They play no role in uh, the promise of the inheritance. And he, he lays out several arguments, and we've looked at those in chapters 3 and chapter 4, uh, and concluding in chapter 4 where he has this example between Her- uh, Sarah and ha- Hagar, the two women, and he, he 
uses those two women allegorically to say these two women represent two covenants. They represent two ways of salvation. One through faith, one through the promise, one through the law. Right? But the problem with the one through the law is that the one through the law leads to slavery. It does not lead to salvation. It leads to slavery. The one through promise, though, leads to salvation. All in all, Paul is not against the law. What he's saying is the law has served its purpose. The law had a purpose. It was a, a tutor. It was a guardian. It was a, uh, a steward, a house manager over the people of God when they were in their infancy until the time comes until they receive the inheritance. So that's why you get that great verse in chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time has come. In other words, once the time has come, when Christ comes into the world, the law has served its purpose. The law led the people to Christ. Now that Christ is here, the law has served its purpose. So that's why Paul can say in the verses that we looked at last time, that for freedom Christ has set us free, chapter 5, verse 1. And, you know, some may argue that maybe chapter 2, verse 16 is the key verse of this book. I look at chapter 5, verse 1 as the key verse in this book. For freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Do not go back. That's what he's saying. Don't go back. Now that you've been set free... To go back to works of the law is again to take, take on that yoke of slavery. To take on that, that old, obsolete way of doing things. Again, think of the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. That's the entire argument of the book of Hebrews is you can't go back. Don't turn back. Don't be like Lot's wife and look back at, you know, at the old things. Uh, those things are gone. Those things are obsolete. They've served their purpose. You've been set free. You have been set free in Christ. So when he ends that section, he ends, of course, talking about circumcision in verse 6. For Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So he's saying, look, circumcision doesn't matter one way or the other, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter because what matters is your faith, which has justified you, now that faith is working through you in love and good works, and is producing spiritual fruit, as we will see uh, in coming weeks. So that's the, just a brief recap now as we come to this passage. Paul here, this is a transition. It's a pivot passage in my, in my view. Because uh, he's going to basically end his argument against the law and faith, and now he's going to begin the exhortations to the Galatian believers on how this now plays out in their lives. So in the first section there, that's Paul's final confrontation where uh, he just concludes his argument against the troublers. He, he calls them troublers back in chapter 1, I believe, verse 7, those who are troubling you. And now he refers to them again. So it's, it's sort of like the bookend, if you will. You know, he, he mentions them initially in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, how they come in and they're troubling you. And now he kind of deals with them finally after destroying their arguments. He now deals with them in, chap, in verses 7 through 12. And he's like, look, let's, let's talk about those who are troubling you. And then verses 13 through 15, then sort of, like I said, they, they pivot. They start to turn now 
to uh, application, if you will. Um, you know, what does this freedom mean? Now that you've been set free of Christ, in Christ, what does that mean for you as a Christian? How do, how do, you, how do you live a life of freedom in Christ? And he's going to say, look, I mean, I'm just boil it right down. I'm going to, you know, spoiler alert, we'll get to it in a moment, but it's not a license to sin, okay? Freedom does not mean you get to do whatever you want. Freedom means you get to do what God wants you to do now. Right? And you've been liberated from the fact that, yeah, you're never going to do that perfectly. Why? Because we still have flesh. He's going to talk about that in verses 16 through 26, this battle you have. You're not going to live uh, the way God wants you to live perfectly. And guess what? He knows that. He's not shocked when you sin. He's shocked when you think he's shocked when you sin. <laughs> but he's not shocked when you sin. He knows that. That's why, you know, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My, my load is light. It's just love one another. And then when you fail, what do you do? You go boldly before the throne of grace and seek grace in time of need. You seek forgiveness because God stands ready to forgive you. So he's going to make that pivot in verses 13 through 15. So first, let's look at verses 7 through 12 again. Um, you know, again, following the previous passage in which Paul expounds the great truth that Christ has set us free, he presents one final confrontation. Now, last time Paul had said if the Galatians accept circumcision, it is of no advantage, right? That's what he says in verse 2. If I, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Basically, what he's saying there is, if you go back and you say, yes, I need circumcision as a means to earn my righteousness, it's not the act of circumcision in and of itself. It's circumcision as it per relates and pertains to the Mosaic law. If you receive that as a means of justification, then you have made Christ Null and void. That's essentially what no advantage means there in the original. You have nullified what Christ has done for you. Right? As I've been saying throughout this whole study in Galatians, it's Jesus plus anything equals what? Nothing. nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add anything to Christ, you get zip, zero, nada, Bupkis. Can you think of any other words that mean nothing? Nil. <laughs> Goose egg. <laughs> What's that? Next. <laughs> Donut. Nothing. Okay? So if you accept circumcision, it's of no advantage. And then he picks up on that in verse 7 when he says, Look, you were running well to the Galatians. You, you were running the race well. When I left you, Things were well. Things were good. I left you. You guys understood the gospel message that I proclaimed to you. I went on. I went back to, to Antioch to continue missionary journeys. And, and everything seemed fine. You were running well. But until someone hindered them. They were progressing along quite nicely in their Christian lives until someone hindered them. Someone hindered them that... The word kind of means to sort of cut in on you, okay? So think of if you are 
running in a, in a race or something, and you've you got a nice you know, inside track, and you're moving along, and then somebody runs beside you and then cuts right in front of you, and, and all of a sudden you, like, you fall or you trip or whatever. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. Someone cut in front of you. Someone held you back. I remember one time when my daughter was real little. She was maybe two or three. This is how competitive she was, okay? Now, my wife would like to say, well, she learns her, her, her competitiveness from you. It's like, and that's true. She has. <laughs> but not at three years old, okay? <laughs> one time I was at the park with, with the kids, and there were some kids running, and she wanted to run around with them, and, and they were racing, and she knew she wasn't fast enough. So what did she do when she was running? Well, she put her little arm out in front of the kid who was getting ahead of her and, and hindered her. That's kind of what she did. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's like, who hindered you? Who, who's holding you back from obeying the truth? They were running well. The Judaizers came in and began to stunt their Christian growth, is what Paul's saying here. These, these troublers have come in. If the Christian life is a race, then introducing works of the law is a hindrance. It's like, it's like putting stumbling blocks out there and trying to run over them. Right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, where he talks about running the race. You need to run to win. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, where he says, Do, do you not know that in a race... All the runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. In other words, look, this is an important race. You need to be sure you're going you're to win this race. So run in a way that's going to win you the race. But if someone starts putting uh, stumbling blocks in front of you, that makes it harder. And that's what the Judaizers are doing. It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews, or similar idea that the writer of Hebrews gets in chapter 12, where he says, therefore... Uh, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you're going to run the race, you've got to set aside all the things that are going to weigh you down. You're not going to run a sprint in a suit, okay? In your dress shoes. You're not going to run a sprint with ankle weights on, and a backpack full of lead weight. You're not going to run a race that way. You've got to lay aside those burdens. In addition to that, you have to make sure that no one's putting stumbling blocks in front of you. So then Paul here emphatically states that this does not come from God. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not, it's not Christ, who, the one who called you, who is now putting these stumbling blocks in front of you. It's not Christ as the one who is hindering you in this race. Christ calls us to freedom, not to bondage. I'm so astonished. Again, chapter 1, verse 6. I'm so astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's what the Judaizers are doing. They come in with a different gospel. The Galatians see that, and that sort of hinders their race. And Paul is saying, that's not coming from Christ. That's not coming from God. It's not coming from the one who called you. Christ has called us to freedom, not to, to bondage. 
And then he goes on and gives another example. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We've heard that one before, right? That, that's a common saying in the Bible. Uh, false teaching, error, heresy, whatever you want to call it, is like leaven in a lump of dough. All he needs a little, right? You know, a little pinch will do you. You put a little bit of leaven in the lump, and it, 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 like what leaven does in dough, it spreads. You bring a little false teaching into the church, what happens? It spreads. You, bring, you introduce error and heresy. Now, most, more often than not, error and heresy don't just come barging through the front door saying, hi, I'm error and I'm heresy. You know, no, it comes in very subtly. Right, a, a, a little change here, a little change there in a key doctrine, and all of a sudden, you know, as 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 the, as the saying goes, right? If you're if you've got two parallel lines and you switch the 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 angle between them ever so slightly, before you know it, those lines are going to be as far apart as they can be. Right? That's how error comes in. It comes in a little bit. Yeah, they, you know, what what were the Judaizers doing? They weren't coming in saying, you don't need Christ. They weren't denying faith. They weren't denying Christ. They weren't denying justification, that you need to be justified. They weren't denying any of those things. What were they doing? They're just saying, you got to add works. Right? Faith, yes. Plus. As uh, Derek Thomas in his series through Galatians says, that's a damnable plus. <laughs> a damnable plus. It, it, it's the plus that turns the gospel into a life-saving message of declaration of freedom in Christ to a damning bondage of, of condemnation and judgment. But it comes in subtly, very, very subtly. So Paul here uses the idea of leaven, right? You remember this when Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew 16, and he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, right? So in Matthew 16, in verse 5, it says, When the disciples, they're in the boat, when the disciples reached the other side, and this is after he fed the 5,000, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread, but Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were essentially teaching a works righteousness. It's a leaven that comes in, and it, it destroys the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing Paul says in Corinthians in a different context, but he uses the concept of leaven to describe it in 1 Corinthians 5 when he is telling them this is what they were doing uh, there was they were tolerating sin. If you remember that when we looked at 1 Corinthians 5 some time ago, one of the things that was going on, now I mentioned before, right, the Corinthian church was a troubled church, right? It was a struggling church. 
And they had a lot of problems. They had divisions. They had sin in the church. They were misusing the, the sacraments and so on and so forth. Well, here, they had a lack of church discipline. They had someone who was committing sin, a gross sin that Paul says, a sin that he says, even the Gentiles look at you and say, "Ugh," <laughs> when you were committing that. It's like, what are you doing? You know, the Gentiles are looking bad at you. The pagans are, are taking it back at this. And, and, and again, the Corinthians were, again, using their, you know, they were kind of using their liberty in Christ for license. It's like, we're free. We could do whatever we want. And Paul's like, no. No, that doesn't mean you get to sin. So he's like, you have to, you have to deal with the sinning brother in the church. You have to approach that person, and you have to enact discipline uh, in order to correct this issue. So in verses 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, your boasting is not good. And that's an understatement because it wasn't that they were just tolerating the sin, they were boasting about it. It's like, look at us. We Look at what, how tolerant we are. You know, that's, it's like, no. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you let sin like this fester in the church, it's going gonna, it's gonna to f- corrupt the entire church. You have to perform emergency, uh, you know, a lumpectomy or whatever. You know, when, when, you know, when cancer gets bad, right, you don't want the cancer to spread. Sometimes you have to cut it out, right? That's what he's saying. You have to take the person out. Not like in a hitman kind of way. You discipline him. You remove him from the congregation uh, uh, unless he repents. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But despite their uh, troubles with the Judaizers, Paul is confident with the Galatians. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So there you get an indication that perhaps it was one individual that was maybe the major source of the trouble in Galatia. Um, Other times Paul says those or them, but perhaps there was one who was like particularly vocal in this group. That one who is troubling you, uh, he will bear... uh, judgment, whoever he is. He will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And this is, this is good news, because despite this infiltration in the church, what Paul is saying here is, look, I'm confident about you guys. Why? Because I was there, right? I, I, I evangelized you, I established your churches, I made sure everything was good, and I, I was pretty confident about you guys when I left, and I'm, I'm still confident that you will take no other view than mine. And this is, in a sense, a, a, a reliance on the fact that, in the end, it is the Lord who preserves, right? Who preserves his people. Think about good old Elijah, right? We talked about Elijah before, uh, after his uh, enormous victory on the, on the slopes of Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, you know, and he thought he was going to win the people over back to Yahweh, and, and sure enough, when he's all done, uh, you know, Jezebel and Ahab say, essentially, may the Lord do more, you know, <laughs> do the same to me and moreover if you are not dead in mourning. So then Elijah has to run and he runs away and, and he thinks he's the only one who's faithful. And the Lord says, no, you're not the only one, Elijah. I've preserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The Lord knows how to preserve those who are his. The Lord preserves his church. 
It's not us. It's not our strength. It's not our uh, tenacity or any of these things. It is the Lord who preserves us. And Paul is confident that the Lord will preserve them through these troubles. It's a bold statement that Paul makes here in the Lord to preserve his people from error. And it's not that there hasn't been error in the church throughout its history. It's not that there's been heresy uh, in the history of the church. There's been plenty of that. But the Lord preserves his seed. He preserves his remnant. Martin Luther, of course, you know, you could say that's you know, a good example of one who probably felt like Elijah, right? You know, I'm the only one here who's faithful. He stood against the, the, the combined might of the Holy you know, Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church, but he stood firm on God's word. He says, unless I'm convinced by Scripture, I am not going to recant anything I've said. That was a dark time for the church. I mean, they call it the Dark Ages. It wasn't because it was dark a lot outside. Uh, it's called the Dark Ages because for most of that period of time, it is believed that the gospel had been obscured and lost. And it wasn't until the, you know, the Reformation that you, know, you get that Latin saying, it's on my coffee mug here too, where it says, post tenebrous lux, after darkness, light. After the Dark Ages where the gospel had been obscured, the light of the gospel was revealed once again because of God and his faithfulness to his church. It wasn't Martin Luther who did this. It was God working through Martin Luther that did this. And he says, look, the one who troubles you, he will bear the penalty. Right? It kind of harkens back to what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7. Whoever uh, distorts the gospel, right? Verse 8, sorry. But if even we or another... Angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you. Let him be accursed. Or think of what Jesus says in Matthew 18 when he talks about uh, what, what is the, 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 the penalty that befalls or be, uh, awaits one who causes one of these little ones of mine to, to fall into sin. He says, well, may a great millstone be tied around their neck and they be cast into the sea. Right? That's the penalty that awaits those who trouble the people of God, with error like this. So when Paul says here, the penalty, they will bear the penalty, they will face the wrath of God for this. They will face the wrath of God for trying to turn the church away from the true gospel. Then Paul goes on in verse 11. He's like, look, if I still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. If Paul's message was circumcision, he would not be facing persecution. Now, this, I'm not sure if this means that perhaps the troublers came in and said, this is what Paul was teaching, or maybe Paul's referring to his life before his conversion. Either way, Paul's like, look, if, if the message I preach is circumcision, then I would not be being persecuted. If I'm preaching works of the law, I would not be uh, persecuted. The point is, the cross, of the, Christ, the cross of Christ is scandalous. The cross of Christ is offensive because it, it shows you that you cannot earn this on your own. It destroys everything of self-righteousness. 
everything of self-righteousness. It says you cannot do even part of this. None of it. You have to relinquish all of it. When Paul says, I count everything in my life as dung to receive Christ and his righteousness, he is talking about all of his works that he had thought was a merit to him. In Philippians 3, everything in his resume, right? He had a great resume, right? Probably was on nice, you know, scrolls and parchment with nice lettering and everything on it. He had a great resume. And he said, this is everything in the plus column here. Look at all these things. I mean, I was born a Jew. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a Pharisee. I persecuted the church. You know, it's like, this, this will open doors for me. And, and, and when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized, nope, <laughs> that's all garbage. I am chucking all of that in the rubbish tin, okay? That is all going into the garbage can. Why? Because I, I saw that I can't do this on my own. The cross is scandalous. And flip side to that is no one persecutes heresy. No one troubles you if you're preaching error. <laughs> right? Satan is perfectly happy to let error creep into the church and let that propagate. Look at all the churches out there that call themselves churches that no longer hold to anything remotely close to the historic Christian faith. Are they receiving persecution? Nah, not really. They're welcome to the party, <laughs> right? They, they, they have the doors open to them. They get the, you know, the invitations to the White House and they get all the special treatment and all that. No, you don't persecute heresy. Satan doesn't care about that. And then Paul's final words to the, her- uh, to the troublers in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. <laughs> it's graphic, <laughs> right? Essentially, he's saying, look, if they're going to preach to you circumcision, go all the way. Just go all the way. I'll let you take that... <laughs> Let your imagination run with that, because that's kind of what Paul is saying. It's graphic. It's graphic. He means it to be graphic. These are Paul's final words concerning uh, the Galatian troublers. And uh, it's all, uh, And when it's all said and done, he's saying, may they be accursed. And that's what circumcision is, right? It's, it's, a, it's a sign in the flesh that is symbolic of judgment, right? That's at least how it was originally presented when it was given to Abraham way back in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, we could start in verse 9 if you'd like. This will give us a run-up to it. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. What is your covenant? Well, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
All right, so the covenant of circumcision. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign. So the, the, the circumcision is a sign. It points to something. A sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall himself be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You either take the sign of the covenant in your foreskin or you get cut off from your people. Right? You remember what happened to Moses when he was leaving the wilderness of Midian to go into Egypt to uh, do what God had called him to do. What happened on the way there? Well, the avenger of death came and was about to kill Moses. Why? Because he hadn't circumcised his two sons. And then his wife runs and quickly circumcises them. And, of course, his wife, not being uh, Jewish or Hebrew, uh, says, you know, you this is a disgusting you know, covenant of blood, but that's the point. It's like, if you do not take the sign, you will receive the judgment. That's the point that Paul, or that, that was being made there with circumcision. And Paul here is kind of making that point. It's like, look, if you're going to take the sign, you've got to receive the curse. May they be accursed. May they be cut off. May they emasculate themselves. Well, now we'll pivot in the time that's remaining, and I have to hurry here. Verses 13 through 15 is now Paul will start to make his initial appeal to the Galatians. Because from verse 13 on, these, again, I believe this begins the exhortations now to the Galatian Christians. His first exhortation, you see there in verse 13, is that our freedom is not a freedom from sin, or sorry, it's a freedom from sin, it's not a freedom to sin. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So our freedom is not a license to sin, but it's an avenue to serve one another. And that's what that word opportunity means. It, it, it's sort of like, uh, it's used kind of to describe like a beachhead. It's a, it's a way to spring into action, right? You know, if you're engaging in a military program, right, you, you need to establish a beachhead in order to, to show force in the, the theater that you're attacking in. Well, that's kind of this idea. Uh, freedom has set the base head, and then from that freedom, it becomes an avenue to love one another, not to serve the flesh, but to love one another. To serve one another by loving one another. It's the same argument Paul makes in Romans 6, where he talks about how you were once slaves to sin. And when he sets them free, he doesn't say, okay, now you're free. He says, no, you're slaves to righteousness now. So yeah, you're free. You're free from sin. You're free from the curse. You're free from having to keep the law perfectly. But now, you're also free to serve Christ. The liberating thing about this opportunity to serve one another in love is because Christ has kept the law for us. There's now no condemnation for failure. Again, remember what I said earlier. 
He knows you're going to fail. He knows you're not going to do this perfectly. It's, I've used this example before, but it's sort of like when you have, you know, if you're a parent of a young child and the young child wants to draw a picture of you, you know, that picture, what's it going to look like? Probably like a stick figure, right? And if you, they're trying to draw your hair, your hair might be longer on one side than it is on the other. Your eyes might be crooked. You know, your mouth might be whatever. You know, and no one looks like a stick. <laughs> uh, but what do you do with that picture? You say, that's horrible. It looks nothing like me. You crumple up and throw it away. No, you take that picture, you say, thank you. You put it on the fridge, and you, you proudly display it. This is what my child did for me. It's like, well, it doesn't look at you. It's, it's not, it's not look nothing like you. Right. But my child did this for me. That's what we do with our good works. Right? Our good works are ugly little stick figures of trying to be holy. God takes those in Christ, right? He receives our good works, and they are sanctified through Christ. And he puts them up on his you know, metaphorical fridge. He doesn't have a fridge. But he puts them up on his metaphorical fridge and says, look what my son, my daughter, look how they're, look how they're loving one another. It's not perfect, I know that. But they're loving one another. So why here, that's the liberating thing. We know we're not going to love perfectly, but with the help of the Spirit, we're going to love more and more. And again, our salvation does not hang in the balance of how we show our love to one another. It's, it's a fruit of our salvation. It's not the cause of it. But why love here? Why does he say love? Well, because in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love the Lord, sorry, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love fulfills the law. Quotes from Leviticus 19.18 there. The law, you know, you have to think about this, right? The law is not an arbitrary set of rules that God decided to come up with on a Tuesday when he was bored. The law is reflective of his nature, of his moral character, of his holiness, but also reflective of the fact that God is love, right? 1 John 4, 9. God is love. The law is reflective of that. How do we know that? Because the law is fulfilled through love. If you look even just at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, the first table of the law, How do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Look at the first four commandments. You will take no other gods before you. You will not take his name in vain. You will honor the Sabbath day. You will not have any carved images of him. You will not try to picture God in some way, shape, or form in which he is not meant to be pictured. That's how you love the Lord. You honor him. You respect him. You revere him. You fear him. You worship him correctly. How do you love your neighbor? Well, you certainly don't kill them. (laughs) You don't lie to them. You don't steal from them. You don't covet their things. That's what Paul says in Romans 13, 8 through 10. I could look at that, but I'm running short of time. But he says, look. You know, he quotes the second table of the law, and he says, look, that's all fulfilled in loving your neighbors yourself. Of course, Jesus summarizes 
the, the, the Ten Commandments and saying, the whole law is summarized in this, love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. Well, then the passage ends here with a warning in verse 15. This warning is against those who want to abuse their freedom or liberty in Christ for the flesh. Where he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Freedom is a wonderful thing, right? I mean, Paul highlights it here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But as with all of God's good gifts and good creations, right, the fall has corrupted and distorted and twists all those good things. Freedom in the flesh is licentiousness, right? That's why Paul warns against it. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Why? That's licentiousness. When you see freedom as primarily for your benefit, then you're not exercising the law of love. You're not fulfilling the law through love. Your faith is not working through love. Because it's all about yourself. That's the point. Love looks outward. Love is, is such that you see a need, right, and you meet it at your own expense. That's, that's an, a, a, a way to kind of boil down the definition of love. That's what Christ did. He saw that we were in great need, and he fulfilled that need at his own expense. Freedom in the flesh is licentiousness. And licentiousness then leads the church figuratively here, as you see here, to consume one another. If you use your freedom for licentiousness, for the flesh, you get verse 15. You bite, you devour one another, you consume one another. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Legalists fear liberty. That's what the Judaizers were. I mean, they feared, you know, we, we remember we read this earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. They came in to spy out our freedom. They saw our freedom. And because they were legalists, they, they, they were like, oh, you know, they panicked. And it's like, you need works of the law. You need something to make sure you don't run off the rails and go into all kinds of licentiousness. But we know that in the case of Christians, the Holy Spirit is stronger than our flesh. And the Holy Spirit will bear fruit in our lives. The whole, you know, the whole point of our salvation is not to, to engage and indulge the flesh, but is to now live in love, the love that God calls us to. Well, as I bring this to a close here, again, this passage is the pivot in Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians, as he will now transition to practical exhortations moving forward. And it's a strong conclusion to his arguments in chapters 3 and 4. But in our fallenness, right, freedom is both a wonderful and scary thing. It's a wonderful and scary thing, because there is always and always will be the temptation to turn our liberty into license, to, to, to see the fact that you know, we're saved as a get-out-of-hell-free card that you win in some little, you know, like, spiritual game of Monopoly. You know, it's like, I don't have to go to jail. I can, I've got the card, right? I've got the, the get-out-of-jail-free card here. And we need to resist that thought. Because the Bible makes quite clear in many places that we are now free to love one another in the spirit, a 
apart from the burden of judgment for our failure. Paul makes the argument here. It's like, look, your freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. So the point is, of course, we need to remember that love or obedience is always a fruit of faith in the gospel. It's not the cause of it. And that's what we're going to see when we look in the next few verses, Lord willing, next week. Works of the flesh, fruit of the spirit. It's, as I like to say, fruit is not something that you can think really hard and cause to grow in yourself. right? Fruit only comes if you have a living, vital organic connection to the true vine, which is Jesus Christ. John 15. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. If you do not abide in me, you can do nothing. So we'll look at that, uh, Lord willing, next time.